Okay, well, good to see you this morning. January 14th, we're clicking right along with the new year, and we're up to lesson number 12 in our study from Matthew this morning. And we looked last week fairly intently at repentance. Uh, we began by looking at, at baptism in particular and what that meant. Of course, baptism following our faith and repentance. And I didn't get through the verses in that section last week as we were talking about repentance. So I want to pick back up there. As you already know, the, the theme of repentance is going to emerge uh, several times throughout our study, just as it emerges several times throughout the New Testament. And uh, what I want to do is uh, try to explore it uh, fairly in, in depth initially here, and then when we get to it, we'll just look at it in its context there. We might go back and remember or, or be reminded of a few things regarding repentance as it pops up. Uh, but last week, we ended talking about uh, six different categories that talk about how we manifest this repentance. And we talked, and I won't go over them in depth, but I'll just mention them. We talked about our attitude, and I gave you the scriptures for those. If you didn't get them, I'll give them to you after class. We talked about specific actions, and of course, scripture supports all of these and gives specific examples. We talked about our expressions of worship and how that manifests our attitude of repentance, and it, bear, it shows that we're bearing fruit. These are the types of fruit, if you will. And then uh, we talked about gospel telling or our witness, uh, being a, a verbal witness to people. And, of course, living out. We talked about actions already, but living out the gospel, being bold in speaking the gospel. God still moves through his word. That's what he does. He moves through his word, the gospel telling. And then we talked about just particularly truth telling the specifics about the gospel, telling about what it's done for us, having that, that personal testimony, if you will, being a witness and being able to manifest the change uh, in our life, not just words, but this is what has happened to me. Isn't that the most convincing witness? Yes, not a witness about what happened to somebody else in terms of what you see and what you hear, but what you experience, what God has done and how the Word of God and the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit and through His Word has manifested itself in our heart. We are a changed person. And we ought to understand that and be able to talk about that and along with people seeing that. So telling, telling the truth. And then, uh, lastly, we talked about abundant giving as an expression, as a fruit of what God has done in our heart and life. Giving of all types, not just money. Uh, but resources and time and so forth. So these are, uh, if you will, broader, ca broader categories of fruit in our life and the expression of Christ in our life. You could call them the marks of a truly repentant heart because God is all about change in our life, is He not? And if you get to a point, or if you experience, maybe I should say, a season in your life where it just kind of seems dull, it just kind of seems bland, uh, eventually, it will, if you're like me, it will seem powerless, I don't want to say hopeless, but the vision is a bit clouded. That's when you want to stop 
And this is a good place to look. Stop and look at the manifestations in your life. What are you spending all your time on? What are you spending your efforts on? What is your hope in? What are your priorities in your life? Are they centered around the truth of Christ's presence in your life? The people in your life, the church, your fellowship, your family, and so forth? Or has the world crept in? And from time to time, we explore those particular scriptures about identifying the things of the world because they do literally sneak in. It's like the, it's like the spiritual door of our life being cracked open just a little bit. Just enough so that something that doesn't need to be there can, can get in. We know what that is. We experience that. So, But these are the marks of a truly repentant heart. In Acts chapter 26 and in, in verse 20, Paul was before Herod Agrippa there. And uh, he said uh, of the Gentiles to whom he had preached that they should repent and turn to God. And then he added, he said, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. This is a normal expectation, is it not? And it's not, it's not an effort that we muster up necessarily. No, it's an expression. It's, it's an overflow, right? I like that word. It's an overflow. It's our new natural expression, having, been, having come alive through the Spirit of God. It's what we want to do. Now, we might not always have the initial courage to do it. We might not always understand how to do that. We might not feel adequate in moving forward for Christ, speaking and living for Him. But the Lord will answer those prayers. He will give us courage. Even Paul, again, Paul prayed for boldness. You know, it depends upon your audience, doesn't it? Depends upon your audience. I've prepared to teach eight and ten year olds, twelve year olds before, and I've prepared to 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 teach or to sing before hundreds before. And it's different. Then I ask myself, well, maybe it shouldn't be any different. I mean you gotta <laughs> you gotta prepare at that level. But sometimes uh, uh, you'll start thinking about other things. You'll start focusing, you know, on your own strengths and so forth and on your own inadequacies. The good news is is that Christ never ceases to make Himself known and to build us up and to give us what we need to be faithful for Him. We can't, as Paul says, we cannot perform deeds appropriate or that manifest repentance without the help of Christ. In fact, if you do it any other way, it's something else. It's It's a worldly effort. And it won't have His strength behind it. I mean, the Word is the Word when you, when you give it out. But we want to live with passion. We want to live with, with knowledge. We want to live with a zeal that speaks of the authenticity of what has happened to us. When something comes into our life that begins to drag on that, it ought to get our attention. Because we're to live above the world well, James 1.22 would remind us. He says, But prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. I like this very bold and very succinct word from James here. He says to prove yourselves to be doers of the Word. Not just one who knows it. Not just one who 
talks about it, not just one who literally in the smallest sense believes, because this same James tells us that the devils believe and tremble at the knowledge and presence of God and His Word. It's more than that. Believing and true belief, the fact that we've... uh, trusted Christ with the fullness of our life. We've trusted Him for salvation. We've trusted Him with everything will will produce fruit in our life of some nature. Christ tells us of this. And we'll see it later in Matthew, particularly when we begin looking at the parables beginning in around chapter 13. It's going to work itself out. It's going to make itself known. And I like what James adds here. He says, look, if you don't do this, if you're not proving yourselves to not just be someone who knows, but someone who does, someone who responds in faith to the demands of the Word, the the commands of the Word. If you're not, he says, you're literally kidding yourself. He says you're deluding yourself. In some translations, the Word is that the, the devil's best tool. It's a deception. You're deceiving yourself. It's that hooked up, if you will, to the truth of our salvation, the reality of our salvation. It will produce works at some level. As Jesus said later, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. But it will produce. And you know, this is not just about, and I hope you never see it this way, this is not just about yielding to command. Making sure that we're getting it right. That, that changes our whole image about our relationship with the Lord, does it not? It's more about, as I said earlier, this overflow. It's about the desire. If we struggle, we're not struggling with our desire, I trust. That's what we want to do. We want to serve and be active and live out the Christian life in a manner that's useful to God. That's what we want. And if we struggle, it's in the power and strength to do that. Because that little battle's always going on. Like I say, we have that tendency to rely upon our own strengths. Do we not? But it, not our heart, not what we're set on. If we're frustrated, it's because we can't seem to get there. It just causes us to trust Christ more. That's all. It causes us to lean upon Him. It causes us to identify those things that are of a worldly nature where they stem from the outside coming in or really what remains within us that needs attention, that needs to come out of us. It lets us focus upon that. But our desires will change because Christ is our life. Christ is our Savior. He's not just the Messiah. He's our Messiah. He has saved us. He has taken our sin. He's taken my sin, past, present, and future, and wiped it all away. He deserves. And it's my great joy to worship Him and to give Him praise and to literally funnel or sift, if you will, everything, every opportunity that comes in my life through His presence. And by that I mean through His Word, through the impact of the Spirit upon our life. No, we delude ourselves if we're only those who know about the Word and we don't do the Word. The Word must be active in us. And then again, he says, James, the same James in chapter 2, verse 18, the latter part of that verse, he talks about it. He gives some practicality. He says, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And you should be familiar with that whole context of of Scripture there, faith and works. 
But specifically here, he uses it. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. You'll be able to see. It won't just be an intellectual conversation about what I believe about the new birth or what I believe has happened to me. You'll be able to see a change in my life. You'll be able to see it. I'm so thankful for that. Because that's how we become salt and light in this world. It's through the reality of the impact of God's Word in our life. This is a very real thing. And you know, if the church as a whole truly believes this, and we, we, we worship and serve in a church that truly focuses on the power of God's Word, the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. But if we fall short of living it out, if we fall short of embracing it in its every respect, we're not going to be successful. We're not going to see the hand of God, the goodness and graciousness of God in growing the church. And when I say that, I mean genuinely growing the church. Growing the church the way it's to be grown, grown with born-again people. With people who are coming and saying, my life has been changed at the preaching of the Word and at the response of the Word. Faith and repentance. My conversion is based upon faith and repentance, they would say. And that's what we want. Christ says He will do that. He says He will grow His church. So repentance. A true and valid repentance. I said last time that repentance was not a new message. The problem was, it's just that uh, the Jews, in the context of these scriptures that we look at here, is where, of course, John is talking to this group of religious leaders. He's addressing them specifically. They just thought repentance was for somebody else. Yeah. We never can lose that realization, that fact, that repentance and this examination that goes on that we hear about from time to time in various sermons that are preached here and, and in Sunday school and teaching, this, this examination of our heart, which is put out for believers, it's put out for members of the church as well. Not just for someone who says, hey, you know, I don't know Christ. I, I need to know more. Well, you need to examine your heart. Well, yeah. But even as believers, we examine our heart. We examine our motives. In every aspect of our existence, our being as a believer, is it under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And if it's not, then we're told to repent. We're told to call it what it is, identify it, confess it. Confess it to God. If you need to confess it to somebody else, and so be it. That's between you and God. But do it. And then the good news is, it's gone. Now, it's really already gone when we talk about justification, but it won't hinder your relationship with your Heavenly Father. It w- I mean, it won't hinder your fellowship if it's identified, if it's confessed, and if it's forsaken. Our life is always going to be about repentance. And eventually, I trust we get to the point where we see that as a good thing. Initially, It's just always difficult, isn't it? Because we have to experience the judgment. We experience the guilt. We experience the the accountability before holy and righteous God. And we come to Him in faith and repentance. And then we experience, I like to put it this way, the sin burden being lifted. 
We know that's true. Why? Because of the witness of the Holy Spirit within us, which every believer has. And that's what we want. We constantly want to know that we're, that we're not out of bounds in any way with our Heavenly Father. The Jews were constantly calling their people together throughout the Old Testament to be sanctified, to be consecrated is the word that's often put out. To be consecrated, to be set apart, as it were. To take that inventory, to come as a people, and then the message was to come as an individual. Boy, I tell you, the more people in our church who are truly consecrated, who are given over after the teaching today, after the the sermon today from Shane, that should be what we look at when we examine our heart. Is there a new level, if you will, of consecration? Am I clean for the week ahead? Have I heard the Word? Have I yielded? Am I willing to do the Word of God based upon what I've heard? This is what changes our life. In fact, this is what, as they said in the old days, has turned the world upside down. It's people who have been impacted by the Word of God and they're living it out. They're living it out. Isaiah 1, beginning with verse 16, we hear this. First chapter of Isaiah. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. There are nine commands or nine imperatives here indicating once again, and it always has been this way, that the Word of God coupled with faith and repentance changes our life. And we have these admonitions here. These these challenges, these directives, if you will, the commands that are here. But they will naturally follow Regarding our desire. Do you follow that? The Holy Spirit will produce a new desire in our heart as we serve Christ. He'll do that. So Isaiah was certainly familiar with that. It's interesting that he mentions here toward the the end of verse 17 in chapter 1 here of Isaiah, he mentions specifically the widow and the orphan. Apparently James knew about that, did he not? Because in 127 in James he says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. He's going to give us a definition of what pure and undefiled religion is. A message that the world today needs to hear. And this is what he says. It is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Wow. Now, he talks about action up front. He talks about actions of compassion, actions of ministry, uh, identifying things, things that come across our path. You know, you don't have to look for somebody to help, do you? No, they come across our path. You don't have to look for someone to minister to at work, in your neighborhoods, in your families, at church. You don't have to. They're always there. It's just a matter of what are we focused upon. And this is it in a nutshell. Our focus is changed because we know the fullness of our life centers around our worship and our service to our Lord. 
It's not about us per se. It's not about things. We even can get too focused on our individual families to the exclusion of others. Ministry opportunity. That has to be balanced. And the Holy Spirit can balance that in our life. So he mentions, as Isaiah does, James does, widows and orphans, just by way of example, people who are truly needy, people who have no resources that we could help. It just says that our focus is upon those who need help. This would be a natural expression. But man, this last part, because he adds, he says, to keep oneself unstained by the world. What an effort. Requires such a dedication, does it not? And I'll tell you what else it requires. It requires sitting under sound teaching and preaching. It involves you with time alone before God in the Word of God. It involves you on your knees, on your face before God, submitting yourselves to Him for His power and His strength in your life. It involves a healthy fellowship in the body of Christ. We need each other desperately. We need each other. We're to help one another. We're to pray for one another. And we have all these resources to be successful. And rest assured, it's not our success. It will always be a manifest. It will always be clear that it's what God is doing in our life. And when we talk about it, or when somebody wants to praise us for what's going on in our life, or how we handled something, or whatever, how we ministered, we know, deep down, we know that we can't do anything apart from the power and presence of Christ in our life. This is why we're back to repentance. This is why repentance, look at it this way, or staying clean, if you will, staying prayed up, if you will, being of a mindset where you acknowledge sin and you deal with it, that's what it protects, our repentance. It keeps this this line of communication, if you will, open clearly. When you talk about, I just get a a visual here, as they say, of the power of God moving between us. I know He lives within me and He indwells me, uh, but I also know that I I can crimp it. I can grieve it. I can, as it says, quench it. I can do that. And we all can. And to the extent that we accept that as a reality in our life, it is the Word of God, we can live above that. We can take advantage of what it means to come and to repent and experience forgiveness, new direction in our life. So focus upon this this morning keeping yourself unstained by the world. We are to be a unique people, a peculiar people for Christ and for the cause of Christ and His kingdom. Psalm 32 is a psalm that talks about... What is it? I should know this because I'm going to be tested on it. It's like the joy of faith, the joy of salvation. I think that's not the right word, the comfort of salvation. Confidence of salvation, I think it is. But in Psalm 32, 3 through 5, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Now, there can be, there will be a, 
physical, if you will, manifestation of our unrepentance can be. David said, I'm, I'm wasting away. I'm, I'm a little slow on my repentance here. I'm a little slow on identifying the hand of God on my life right now. A little bit unyielding in dealing with my sin. And he says, my body wasted away. Have you ever been there? Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Listen, the Word tells us in Hebrews, He's going to chasten those, that he, those who belong to Him. God's sons and daughters will receive spiritual chastening at His hand. And He reminds us, He says, now if you don't receive this, if this doesn't happen in your life, then you're none of His. Because God will, it's just like he will, he will put His Holy Spirit in every believer. He will chasten every believer. He'll do that. How do you respond to the chastening hand of God? That can be a quick, healthy process if you let it be. If you yield, if you agree with God, that's what confession means. It means to agree with God, and if you repent, which is to turn and go the other way, if you do those things, we can experience His loving arms around us in a way that we're more accustomed, we like a little better than just His chastening hand. But we're thankful for that chastening hand, are we not? He tells us, don't, don't be grieved by it. Understand for what it is. It's the expression of God's love and concern in our life. He's literally taking care of us. And don't spend too long being disappointed in yourself, okay? That just moves you toward pride, really. Acknowledge what you are. Acknowledge that you're needy. Acknowledge that you misspoke or you said something reckless or you were negligent or whatever. And it may just be your thought process that you sat over there and you stewed over something that wasn't even accurate or probably would never happen, judging someone's motives or whatever. You know what I'm talking about. And say, God, this is, this is evil. This is not good. I'm going to trust you. When you do that, and you remain just as close to God, just as filled with His Spirit, just as usable as you possibly can. Because you're not just someone who knows the Word. You're someone who's doing the Word. That's what it's about. My vitality, he says, was drained away with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. That's what he says. It's a wonderful thing. He experienced that. And that's what we want to experience. We want to experience spiritual cleansing day in and day out as necessary. Well, I want to get through this next passage of Scripture because we want to go just a little bit deeper regarding repentance. Okay, Now, there's a passage that you'll find in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians. 
And um, it's chapter 7, because there Paul gives some specific words that define, if you will, a true and valid repentance. And someone might say, well, okay, I'm, I'm all about repentance. I, and I know it's agreeing and, and uh, you know, admitting and accepting and turning. I know that. But what, are, what might be some of the examples or things that you can literally look at? And he gives some words there that we can take and look at this morning that define, if you will, a true and valid repentance. And in Second Corinthians seven one, let's begin there just for a moment. He says, "Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God." Now he's talking to Christians here, and Paul's been dealing. I can't go back and give you everything this morning, but he's talking about people who are had sinned by talking about him and not being supportive of him and not following his directives and yielding to people who had come into the church and were preaching different things and so forth. And he was longing for repentance on their part. But here in a nutshell, in in the first verse, he, he talks about our motivation, that he reminds us of the promises of God and our desire to be cleansed. And he says the the goal is is perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is, we could say staying clean before God, if you will. And that will always involve repentance. He goes back and he's actually referring to, if you go back to chapter 6, verse 16 and 18, he pulls this, um, this forward. He says, he quotes from the Old Testament, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them of the midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And you find variations of this verse throughout the Old Testament in Exodus, Leviticus, and even in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, other places. This is what Paul's reminding them. He says, this, this is what it's about. Our God has called us out. We're to come out from the world. James said, keep yourself unspotted from the world. So with that, we look at these words that he gives us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 11. And we can look at these words and kind of use them. I mean, take these words internally as we look at them. We should have time to do these and finish these and we'll be done for the day. But look at these words and see if they're... In, if they in any way are part of, a, of defining your repentance and how you see repentance, or maybe how you've repented lately. He, he speaks first of earnestness, okay? Earnestness. Now, you can find these definitions. If you've got a good study Bible, I know the MacArthur Study Bible has them in there. And if you want to do a little deeper study, it's really neat. But look, he's talking about being eager for righteousness because would you agree that if there's sin on your heart if there's been sinful words and actions and attitudes then that righteousness has been affected has it not it has it's this desire to make things right we call it restitution particularly where it's involving relationships there must be an earnestness there that is as he says that's our desire well that's okay 
but you contrast that with other things that could be our desire. What, what might they be? If we're not truly focused on restitution of relationship, what might we be focused on instead? Well, absolutely. And, and, and a manifestation of that would be we're just, we're just wanting to, you know, to establish, hey, that we were right after all. You know, that kind of thing. That, hey, yeah, you know, I, I really want you to see you know, that, that I was right in this matter from the beginning. Okay? That's not how we're to approach it. If we speak the truth and if we act upon the truth, that will be evident. It'll be evident. But what we're literally seeking is restitution. And sometimes when we do that, somebody has to take the high road, as we say. Somebody has to truly set the example of forgiveness and restitution. So, there's an eagerness that should be involved to make things right. Now, if it's just between us and God, the same thing prevails. Lord, I want to be clean before You. I don't want to be vindicated necessarily. That's not my ultimate goal. I want to be right before You. So we look at that word, First, he mentions an earnestness there. If you've got chapter 7, verse 11 up and looking at it. And then there's this word vindication. And the Greek there is the word apologia. Okay, Vindication. And he's talking about a desire to, to clear one's name or to remove a stigma from one's name. It involves a removal of guilt. It would, it, it would involve uh, being you know, proven to be trustworthy once again or to restore confidence, if you will. And it also carries with it a desire to make repentance known. And if we're all concerned about someone knowing about the fact that we were in error or whatever, or that we need to repent, that can be a hindrance. That's again focused upon self, right? But when our desire is to make things right, if it's about restitution of relationship, okay, if it's about truly being restored, removing the stigma, then we focus not upon ourselves, but upon the other person. So, you've got earnestness, and the word that he uses here, apologia, or as it's rendered in the English here, at least this translation, vindication. Two words here that he mentions. This should be a part of our attitude. This should be a part of our desire. Thirdly, you see the word indignation. I've got the Greek word here. I don't even know that I can pronounce it. Aganictesis, I think is the word. And my study says it only appears in this location in the whole New Testament in this text right here in, in 2 Corinthians 7.11. But it, it, it conveys the idea of being angry or outraged over one's sin. Do you ever just get put out with your own failure? I mean, just aggravated. And you have the attitude, like, I know, I know better than that. I know what I should have done. I know what I should have said. That kind of thing. And you're just kind of aggravated with the whole thing. That's a healthy thing. If you want to be angry, be angry at sin. <laughs> be angry at sin. 
And it's a reminder of our flesh, is it not? It's a reminder of our humanness. And what does that do? That turns us toward Christ. And we come, and if that's our heart, man, you're almost home <laughs> repenting. It's almost a done deal. Because it reflects the fact that our heart is not, it's not upon us. It's upon Christ and the work of Christ in our heart. I don't like being duped. And I tell you, the, the more you follow Christ, uh, you know, if you move forward in the sanctification of your life, it seems like the devil's tricks and the, and the, the, the devil's work in your life just becomes a little bit sneakier. You know what I'm saying? He finds ways to get to us. I can assure you that if you're serving God, there will be a battle. There will be. If you're making a difference, if you're a, a clean tool in the hand of God, you're going to attract some attention. You are. Just be ready for it. The Bible tells us that, does it? It said, don't, don't think it's weird. Don't think it's crazy, the fiery trial that comes upon you because of your faithfulness. Don't think it unusual. If we think about it long enough, you'll be praising God that there's something there. It's just like when Paul and his buds were in prison. It says they sang and they praised God. Just having been, been being counted worthy to suffer for His name. Boy, that's a whole different mindset, isn't it? That I'm here suffering because I won't yield. Or because I'm standing for the right. Or because God is using me in this situation. And my heart is full. I'm right where I ought to be. It takes a different, different attitude entirely. So this indignation that we find only here involves an outrage, if you will, over one's sin. Angry over the results of sin. That's a healthy thing. Not at the individual. If you want to be angry, be angry at yourself. Be angry at your weakness. Christ can take care of all that. And then He mentions fear. And of course, this is the same context it would be in, in most every place you read about fear. Uh, particularly in the New Testament, it refers to a rever- reverential fear or awe of God. You know, I like to put it this way, particularly regarding the word awe. Pizza's not awesome, okay? It's not. It's awesome, okay? A new shirt is not awesome. Oh, that's awesome. No, God is awesome, <laughs> okay? <laughs> that's what He is. That word is just about His and His alone. And His works are awesome, it's just like Mark reminds us in Mark's Gospel time and time and time again. You see, I think it's 18 or 19 times in the Gospel of Mark you'll find a word that's translated different ways. Sometimes it's translated fear or awesome or amazing. And it's this picture of, oh, about what God has done. In fact, that's the way Mark ends the book. And they were all amazed. The amazing Jesus. And that's the way that we see God. I tell you what, His mercy and grace are great because when we come to Him, I know there are times when I've, I've, if I've failed God in any way, pick a way, and you come and you trust Him, you find forgiveness, and you, you're relying upon Him, how He is so gracious in moving upon the impact of my failure. Are you with me on that? And it almost as if it doesn't seem that it reaped all the damage or hurt feeling or whatever that it could have reaped. 
And that's because of God's intervention. That's because God comes in and He doesn't just cleanse me and restore me, but He can spread out His influence over the impact, the results, if you will, of my sin. That's what we talk about when we talk about grace upon grace when we're looking at God and His work in our life. Don't you want that? Don't you want God, if you will, cleaning up the mess? Okay? And He can do it in record time. He can do it genuinely. He can manifest Himself. He can draw attention to His presence, His forgiveness, His awesomeness through our failure. That's what God does. And we can thwart that by being unrepentant. As we read earlier, David said, I started wasting away when I would not repent. Well, fifthly, he mentions a word. It's the word longing. And here, this specifically is a desire for restored relationship. And if that is our goal, if that is our focus, and if it's a relationship issue, and we just simply say, we do what we can. We do everything that we can. And we want it to be clear that that is our motivation. If it's you and another individual, me and another individual, a group of individuals, what can you do other than come with a repentant heart and to make sure you know and that you convey that your desire, your zeal, or your longing rather in the matter is a desire for a restored relationship. And let's examine the other end of that just for a minute. And if you're met with, or if the other person or, or people won't respond, that's not their desire that's their problem their problem nothing you can do about that you can continue praying you can continue with your desire and availability but there's nothing you can do about that that's God's work but you my friend will be left in good standing with the Lord if you're truly desiring this uh, relationship, the situation to be, to be restored and to be fixed. That's not to say that people don't ever come to impasse. We see examples of that in the Word of God, don't we? The most famous example is with Paul and Barnabas, you know, over Mark, you know. And it was what it was. There's no indication even there that they were fussing and fighting with each other and throwing mud at each other. It's just they were committed in their thinking. Where they were, they each thought they were right and it led to a parting of the ways. And I like to add, it led to a temporary parting of the ways. Did it not? Did he not call Mark back later, saying plainly that he's profitable to me for the ministry? Did they not go on and do work in the name of Christ going both ways? They did. They did indeed. We want to be clean before the Lord. I may not always be accepted may not always be understood, may not always be forgiven, may not always be held in the same light with someone that I normally was, any of us. The real question is, am I clean before God? Am I willing to do whatever is necessary (coughs) to restore a relationship? He mentions zeal, sixthly. Now he's talking about here a new desire for holiness. He mentions zeal earlier in verse 7. But just, just to emphasize the impact here, the point rather, that it's something that can be seen. A new desire for holiness. And that's the implication here. That it, we're, we're manifesting our true desire. It's not like, well, yeah, okay, I'll meet with you. It's not that. 
it's, hey, I'd be happy to do that. I really would love to do that. We can sit down and between us and Christ, we, we'll get to the bottom of this. You know, restoration. This is what God is about. He's about forgiveness. He's about His power and presence living within us. He's about the church being in unity and moving forward as one body. This is His work. The work of the Holy Spirit within us. This is what He does. This is what He does. And that should be easily seen in our attitude, in our timeliness, in our efforts, in our actions, in our tone. It can be seen. It is a true expression of the heart. This is our desire. And then lastly, there's one more word or one more phrase here you'll read there. He talks about avenging of wrong. Truly repentant people have a strong desire to see justice done and to make restitution for the wrongs they have committed. Go back and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Mark those. I won't go back and read them now. I'm going to end here in just a sec. But the Lord wants us to be a repentant people. He does. And we can accept it up front. We're going to have to repent. <laughs> We're going to have to examine our heart. You know, it's a wonderful thing. I said earlier that we, we need one another in the fellowship of God. Sometimes a person can help you repent. Sometimes a, a true friend who knows you, who sees you, and understands you, can help you repent. I'd like to think in every case, if you're married, that's always your spouse. Because we know each other better than anybody, do we not? We know each other better. <coughs> Those are the people, should be the people that you can expose yourself to. Because a lot of times they see, they see you exposed whether you <laughs> want to or not. They, they can best do that. But the good thing is that they have your best interests at heart. And you may have another close friend of the same sex who has your best interest at heart who doesn't want to lord over you or by their comments prove that they know more than you know or that they're above you in this matter. No, they just simply want to point you to Christ and to the Word of God in a way that will allow that Word to have its impact upon your life regarding whatever it is that you need at that particular time. That's the wonderful work of the Word and the Holy Spirit in our heart and life. That's the treasure that we have. Now, we have to warm up to it. We have to yield ourselves to it. Because I can assure you that the Lord will do His part. He will. He'll convict and He'll forgive. He will restore. Let's pray together.